Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Stephen R. Sokup, and he published a book in February 2021. The title of the book is The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How P Political Correctness Captured Big Business. Very important topic, very important subject. Read through the book. I learned a lot. I knew some of it, but uh, definitely some of the more kind of uh, capital markets, financial uh, stuff I really wasn't familiar with, but he can talk more about that. So Stephen R. Sokup, are you there? I'm, I'm here, William. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not know your background, can you talk about your, your background and what led you to write this book, The Dict Dictatorship of Woke Capital? I started out working in the capital markets uh, in Washington research uh, almost exactly 25 years ago. In fact, it was 25 years ago last week. Uh, right out of graduate school, I took a job with Prudential Securities Washington Research Office, which was at the time uh, the number one rated Washington office uh, in Institutional Investors Magazine and was considered among uh, the best shops around uh, for providing information about what is going on in Washington and how it might affect capital markets uh, for large Wall Street investors. Um, Within a few years, uh, we find our, found ourselves sort of on the outs uh, at Prudential. Uh, and part of the reason for that uh, is because we continued to sort of toe the line on what we believe to be uh, traditional virtues and traditional values uh, in capital markets, which at the time was not all that popular. It was becoming less and less of an issue of focus uh, among some Wall Street firms, including the one that we worked for. Uh, and before long, we found ourselves out on the streets. Um, my boss, Mark Melcher, uh, was fired uh, by Prudential with a specific uh, reason given by the firm that his views no longer uh, meshed with the views of the firm. In fact, that's what they wrote exactly uh, on the form that they filed with the NASD explaining why he was terminated, that his views no longer meshed with the views uh, of the firm. And what year was that, Stephen? That was 2000. In fact, you know, they took the top ranked Washington analyst, uh, Melcher, um, two weeks before the 2000 election, which at the time was the most incredible election ever, and fired him because he was concerned about ethics and virtues uh, in investing and the new management of the firm had sort of had enough of that. Uh, so, you know, that was our first indication that there was uh, trouble on Wall Street uh, with respect to what we would call traditionalism, traditional virtues, and traditional capital markets. Um, we spent a couple of years uh, after that over at Lehman Brothers. Uh, and while our immediate supervisor at Lehman uh, was fantastic, uh, the firm's management wasn't always uh, so thrilled with the things that we had to say. Uh, specifically, whenever we wrote about China uh, and whenever we tried to explain to our clients uh, the risks involved investing uh, in the People's Republic of China, uh, our pieces generally were rejected uh, by firm management on the recommendation of their investment bankers, who, as it turns out, uh, were doing business in China with the very people we were criticizing, uh, and they didn't want us screwing up deals. Uh, so it was only a couple of years at Lehman before we decided that we could no longer be honest uh, with our clients, that we could no longer fairly represent what we believe to be the risks uh, in the capital markets. Uh, and so we started our own firm, an independent research provider known as the Political Forum. Um, that business has been 
functional and has been providing honest, earnest uh, assessment of the risks posed to capital markets by politics and geopolitics for the last 18 years. Uh, and uh, that's where we have developed uh, our beliefs about what matters uh, and what matters specifically with respect to ethics uh, in investing. Um, about two, maybe three years ago, uh, I met a group of people uh, in Washington who were uh, more on the think tank side of things, uh, who were doing some work on uh, what we now understand, what we now know as ESG or environmental, social and governance investing, uh, activist investing. Uh, and as I became more and more familiar with them, uh, I became more and more familiar with the case they were making against this activist investment. Um, Justin Danhoff, who runs a free enterprise project uh, for the National Center on Public Policy, uh, kindly uh, came uh, and gave a presentation to our clients, uh, and it was a stunning presentation. Um, what he told me, uh, what he told us, what he told our clients uh, was stuff that, that we had not even considered, that we did not know, that we did not understand uh, about just how thoroughly uh, some of our uh, colleagues in the financial services world, uh, just how thoroughly they were trying to politicize the capital markets, trying to weaponize capital uh, to be used for political ends. Uh, and these are these are people who were had been in the business for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in some cases, uh, who were unaware of what was going on behind the scenes. So at that point in time, I, de I decided that I should dedicate myself to finding out more about this, uh, to investigating uh, the causes of it, to investigating how it conflicted with what we believe to be uh, the ethical foundations of capitalism and of free and fair capital markets. Uh, and so from that point, uh, the book became uh, a, a project uh, that I definitely wanted to uh, work on, that I definitely wanted to share with, uh, at the very least, people in financial services. And through the graces of Encounter Books, I've been able to share it with a much larger, larger audience. Well, it's really a fascinating book, really important. And you, in, you start off in the introduction explaining what ESG is, but also just how recent this, these changes have happened. And I think and if you look at the larger, you know, uh, spectrum of all politics, the financial markets is one where everything's becoming woke. But these financial things, they it makes them you called it kind of a kindler, gentler Gordon Gecko. These uh, kind of woke ideas. Can you talk about some of these characters that are, are really more recent, like Larry Fink or Jamie Dimon that maybe people may not be as familiar with? Right. Uh, in the introduction to the book, uh, I, I, I use those two. Uh, players in the capital markets specifically to describe the two types of uh, woke investors. Uh, the first, as you mentioned, is Larry Fink. Uh, Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock Incorporated, uh, which is the largest asset management firm in the world uh, with roughly $10 trillion uh, in assets under management. Um, it's a massive company. It is a massive influence on capital markets. It's a massive influence on the companies it holds. And because the overwhelming majority of its investments are in passive investments in uh, exchange traded funds, index funds, uh, et cetera, um, it holds all companies. Um, so it, it's not 
just uh, a financial services firm that would have uh, a very narrow influence. It has very wide, very broad, and very deep influence. Uh, Fink, over the last couple of years, has made it explicit uh, to his investors, to his clients, and to the CEOs of the corporations that they hold, that he believes that sustainability, uh, which is the idea of preparing for a zero carbon future, is the single most important factor uh, to look for in deciding which companies to invest in and which companies uh, to uh, support wholeheartedly. Uh, so essentially what he has done is taken 200 years of capital markets practice where, uh, you know, pecuniary matters are the most important uh, features that that uh, investors look for in companies that they put their money in and, and thrown that out the window and decided that sustainability uh, should be the most important uh, factor. Uh, so he's he's clearly very much on a rat, the radical edge of a change in capitalism and a change in capital markets. Um, Jamie Dimon, by contrast, uh, I describe in the book as as sort of uh, the St. Augustine uh, of uh, woke investing, the St. Augustine of ESG. Um, he has seen how well Larry Fink has done. He has seen uh, just how powerful ESG can be. And he's decided to get in uh, on uh, the gravy train while he can. Uh, and, and he's done that. And he continues to push JP Morgan in that direction. But whereas Fink is a true believer in the power of capital markets uh, to change the world and to, you know to improve the world and to make things uh, a much better and happier place, Diamond, I believe, is simply in it because he sees uh, how it can change JP Morgan and how it can line his pockets. Um, and it's very, it's very expedient because it makes people look less maybe crass and greedy. You use those terms in the intro and you definitely reference Voltaire where you say EHG is promises the best of all possible worlds. Kind of like, uh, yes, Pang it does. I think it was Pangloss who said that and Voltaire. Exactly. And so, uh, but I mean, you just see this change. It's fairly recent. I mean, you would you could say that the capital markets may be purely capitalistic, but there's still been um, a matter of morality in some in, in allowances for that in some capital markets. But now this wokeism, would you say that it's much more authoritarian that you really have to follow this or that they're trying? Like you said, I think that think is and I mean, your intro is pretty surprising because the head of the Fed allowed Fink to manage their portfolio, which to me was pretty shocking. Yeah, well, that, you know, that one of the benefits that come with, comes with being the largest and best-known asset management firm uh, in the world is that you not only have connections, but you're known as the largest and best asset management firm in the world. Uh, and so in 2020, uh, when uh, the Fed and the Treasury uh, were struggling to figure out what to do about the crash in the markets, uh, due to COVID and what to do about what they saw as a, a very serious risk uh, to uh, both the capital markets and to the economy more broadly, uh, they enlisted Fink's help and they enlisted BlackRock's help in managing uh, the programs that they put together. So essentially, uh, this uh, evangelical uh, sustainability guru became the partner uh, of the Federal Reserve and of the United States federal government uh, in 2020 as uh, part of the government's reaction to COVID-19. Uh, uh, so it was, you know, it, it's very, 
uncomfortable for those of us who know who Fink is, uh, what he believes and what he intends to do with capital markets. Uh, as for the ethics um, in business and in capital markets, I, I think it's important to remember that capital markets have always had, and capitalism itself has always had, uh, sort of an ethical uh, framework in which it operates. This is, you know, this dates back to Adam Smith. This is Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand, this idea uh, that there is a set of virtues uh, that tends to be interwoven uh, into society, into capital markets that enables capitalism to function. Uh, and without this ethical framework, without these virtues being part of society, uh, the uh, system falls apart. Um, what the ESG movement has done, what the stakeholder capitalism movement has done is to replace those traditional virtues with new virtues, uh, with a new set of values that they, that it, they believe uh, are more important than those traditional values and are more uh, effectively part of uh, the current environment and can deal with the, the challenges of the 21st century uh, more effectively. Uh, so the ethics idea is that there's always been an ethical uh, component to this. What they've done is change uh, the very nature of what that ethical component is. Right. And that's very important. Can you define, help define to the listener, the difference between a shareholder, which most people have heard of, and this new term stakeholder? Well, a, a shareholder, obviously, is somebody who owns the company. <clears throat> Uh, or owns portions of the company. You own the shares of the company. Uh, a shareholder is somebody who has taken their money, their capital, uh, and invested it, given it to the company to say, hey, do with this uh, to make your company bigger and better and to make your products uh, to do your business and return it to me with uh, some sort of uh, interest, um, whether that's a growth, you know, whether that's dividends or a growth in uh, the uh, price of the share or whatever. This is, uh, you know, a, a, a traditional arrangement where uh, an investor gives somebody some money and says, do with it what you need and uh, bring it back to me with a little more than I gave you. Uh, that's a shareholder. A stakeholder uh, is somebody who is invested in the company in a more uh, metaphorical way. Uh, an employee of the company, the customers of the company, uh, the city in which the company operates, the environment around the, the factories or uh, the headquarters where the company is, and the environment more uh, broadly. Um, those are the stakeholders of the company. Uh, those are the people who are affected by the company, uh, whether they want to be or not. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, uh, SRI, the... Um, Stanford the, Research Institute... Yes, the, the, the Management Institute in Stanford, at Stanford Business uh, developed the idea of stakeholder capitalism as a descriptive term, not as a normative, 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 normative right. term. Not to be applied in reality, I guess, is what you mean, right? Right. It was simply their way of explaining what a successful business does. Um, if you're going to be in business for long, you have to be concerned about your share your shareholders, but you also have to be concerned uh, about your employees. You can't have employees who are unhappy with their jobs or think that they're underpaid because they'll leave the company. Uh, you can't have customers who are unhappy uh, because they'll buy from a competitor. You can't have the city that you work in unhappy uh, because they'll uh, 
they'll find you, they'll tax you, they'll uh, make your life difficult. So a successful business has always had to take uh, stakeholders into consideration. Um, it's only within the last, say, three or four decades, probably since the early 1980s, uh, that this idea that stakeholders need to be uh, more specifically catered to uh, by management has become uh, a, a, an issue. Um, it, it started with uh, the philosopher slash business uh, management guru, Edward Freeman, uh, who took up uh, the mantle of ethics uh, in business, seeing uh, the failure uh, of the Smithian ethics uh, in uh, contemporary business, he offered a new ethical framework. Uh, and that ethical framework has become the foundation of what we understand is, as ESG, uh, stakeholder capitalism, woke capital, et cetera. And you take time. I mean, this is not a total financial book. You take time going back to the history of what led up to the present. And it's really a great encapsulation of the cultural history that really led up to this woke stuff. Can you maybe go back to really the beginning and, and lead the the audience up to the present? I mean, that would take a lot of time, but you really did a superb job in outlaying this kind of evolution of these ideas that led to the woke thing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I start the book uh, in 1876 uh, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University, uh, where uh, Professor Richard Ely uh, is teaching political economics, uh, and one of his graduate students uh, is Woodrow Wilson. These are, between the two of them, Ely and Wilson, these are the foundational um, godfathers of American progressivism. Uh, they determined together uh, that the way that uh, society is ev evolving, uh, that Americans need a guardian class. They need a class of experts uh, who understand the world uh, better than the average person does, who will look out for them. Uh, they need a professional class that will uh, compensate for the selfishness and the ignorance of the people uh, to make sure that government, uh, that business, uh, that all of the ruling class uh, institutions uh, make proper decisions rather than decisions that are influenced only by the will of the people. Uh, and so what they develop becomes uh, American public administration, which is this idea that we need a bureaucratic class, a professional class of experts uh, that stands between the people uh, and policy and helps to compensate, as I said, for what they saw as the ignorance and the selfishness of the people and creates a more uh, effective policy. Um, when you hear uh, people uh, in American politics today complain about how government takes too long to do anything, it takes so long and the filibuster is a problem and the way that we have to go through all of the rituals uh, to pass laws and to, to get them enacted and to go. When they complain about that kind of stuff, what they are essentially doing is embracing this idea uh, first promulgated by Ely. Uh, and Wilson, that uh, government of, by, and for the people is ineffective. Uh, and that in order to function in a modern society, we need a government that has uh, the ability to go around the people and to enact policies uh, that are based on the best professional standards uh, rather than on the, the beliefs of the people. 
and wow. scientism there's all the presumption of them using science even uh goes through marx and all these other people too so there i didn't know that much about wilson him being writing these pieces on administrative government but you can see that in dc i mean if you're in dc too just these huge administrative bodies supposedly operating for the best of us but can you talk about how wilson led to uh the creature from jekyll island right well <laughs> um wilson uh Woodrow Wilson was a very controversial academic. Um, many of the things that he said and that he wrote uh, did not sit well with um, some of the older generation, but he was embraced uh, wholeheartedly uh, by his generation, by the younger generation, who believed that he understood and he alone uh, had sort of this key to uh, understanding uh, political e economics and the key to developing a better and more effective country. Um, and so those who were his colleagues helped to further uh, his career uh, several steps along the way. They uh, very powerful classmates of his, very wealthy and very powerful classmates of his helped to get him to Princeton as a professor, helped to get him uh, into the presidentship of uh, Princeton University uh, and then helped beyond that to get him into uh, the governorship of New Jersey. Uh, as governor of New Jersey, uh, he embraced uh, his governing theory and the idea that uh, of progressivism very wholeheartedly and, and in so doing caught the attention uh, of others uh, who were in the same, uh, who were like-minded, who believed in the same things, who thought that perhaps that he could be uh, their savior and, and the way for them uh, to get the pol policies that they believed in uh, enacted. And so some of the same classmates, along with a number of very wealthy uh, bankers and uh, very wealthy investment professionals, uh, decided to try and talk uh, Wilson into running for president uh, in um 2012. Uh, first, they approached Teddy Roosevelt uh, because Roosevelt had been, in fact, the first progressive president. Uh, and, and when they realized that Roosevelt wasn't going to be what they wanted, uh, they decided that he could be uh, a perfect foil to allow him, them to get the man they wanted, which was Wilson, uh, into the White House. Uh, so they encouraged Roosevelt to run as a progressive, to split, split the Republican vote, uh, and they encouraged Wilson uh, to run as the Democrat. And, and lo and behold, exactly as they planned, uh, Wilson was elected president uh, as uh, Roosevelt split the Republican uh, vote. Once in office, uh, Wilson got to work on a number of different uh, matters that were had been longtime dreams uh, of the the uh, the investment bankers of the banking class of the progressive ruling class. Uh, the 16th and 17th Amendments uh, were signed under his watch. Um, and then most uh, notably, uh, he agreed to uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, as, as you implied uh, with your uh, uh, calling it the monster from Jekyll Island. The creature, right? The creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, the Federal Reserve was essentially, uh, the idea behind it was created by a, a small handful of bankers uh, at the resort at Jekyll Island, which was owned by J.P. Morgan. Um, where they had gone and decided what they wanted uh, from a central bank, how they wanted to be able to manage uh, the nation's banking system in order to prevent uh, a number of banking crises uh, that they had seen over the previous couple of decades. Uh, and then all they needed was the guy in Washington who'd signed the bill. Um, 
Wilson was a little bit resistant, uh, in part because he wanted more power for his bureaucracy, more power for his professional class. Uh, but in the end, they compromised the bankers uh, and Wilson uh, created the Federal Reserve specifically uh, to be of, by and for the big banks uh, with a little bit of help and a little bit of input uh, from the federal government. Uh, so, you know, that was one way uh, that Wilson uh, used circumstances uh, to advance his idea uh, that the public needed uh, institutions that would look out for them uh, and that the government should be uh, in large part in charge of those institutions. Right. So he thought he was doing a, the public a favor by putting together the Federal Reserve. He thought right. that, that, yeah, which is, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. You still see yep. J.P. Morgan right all the way to Jamie Dimon. <clears throat> and then so you have this kind of American progressivism, but then you see this kind of Marxist influenced Frankfurt School kind of also come in. You call, I think, the two streams meet. Can you talk about also the kind of European uh, Marxist influence that kind of led up to the present? Right. Um, in uh, the early 1920s, uh, particularly in and around uh, uh, Germany, um, there were a handful of very well-known uh, at the time and, and very uh aggressively um, revolutionary uh, Marxists who were upset by and confused by uh, the fact that the workers of the world did not unite in, you know, under what they saw as Marxist theory, World War One should have been a disaster uh, for the ruling class. The workers in Germany should have looked at the workers in France and the workers in Great Britain uh, and said, you know what, we're not going to fight our brothers. Uh, we're not going to fight your wars anymore. We're going to unite and we're going to fight you. Uh, when that didn't happen, uh, these Marxists were completely flummoxed. They didn't understand what happened, why that was the case. They didn't understand how to fix it. Uh, and so they, they sat down and they, and they started to, you know, to put their minds to it. Um, the first and probably best known uh, of these uh, Marxists was the Italian Antonio Gramsci, uh, who truly and earnestly hated the Catholic Church and believed that the Catholic Church was an enormous part of the problem. Uh, so uh, Gramsci fought uh, against uh, the fascist government of Mussolini uh, and was continually trying to get, he was in the parliament in Italy uh, and was the leader of the Communist Party and was continually trying uh, to push Italy toward a communist government. Uh, and, and he was put in prison uh, for his deeds. And while he was in prison, he smuggled out some 3,000 pages of, of his musings. Uh, and what he essentially said was that he believed that the institutions of the West, the cultural institutions, starting with the Catholic Church, but going all the way down uh, into the schools, into the media, uh, into various forms of entertainment, etc., that all of these were essentially dominated by the ruling class, by the bourgeoisie, uh, and that in order for the revolution to take place, in order for the workers uh, to finally realize their own uh, best interests and to unite against uh, the ruling class, uh, they would have to first overturn the culture. Uh, they would have to change these institutions. They would have to break this cultural he hegemony that uh, the traditionalists, uh, the religious uh, people held, uh, and teach a more... Um, effective and a more honest culture uh, to 
uh, the working class. And once the working class understood who they were, uh, understood what their real culture was, uh, then they could uh, foment the revolution. Um, at the same time, as Gramsci was writing these uh, ideas down uh, in, from his prison cell in Italy, um, a handful of others, uh, Georgi Lukács uh, in Hungary, uh, was putting together so many of the same views uh, that the idea is that you had to overturn the existing culture. Uh, Lukács and Gramsci's ideas became popular uh, among uh, a number of intellectuals in, in, in Germany. Uh, and eventually this became the foundation of what would be known as the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School uh, being uh, the uh, primary Marxist intellectual group uh, in Germany and frankly in the West uh, for most of the 20th century. Um, the Frankfurt School embraced this idea that the workers needed to understand better who they truly were, uh, that in order to do so, you needed to undermine the existing culture. Uh, they incorporated a little bit of Freud. You know, people don't understand what's going on in their, uh, you know, in their subconscious, et cetera. Uh, and, and they created a new uh, version uh, of the Marxist ideology that focused primarily on culture. Um, and that was kind of like critical theory and, and yep. they kind of grew. They went from Frankfurt, Hitler rises up, they end up all in Colombia during the war. So they come, they're bringing their ideas to the U.S. and seeding them around. And then that kind of grew from there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Generally, uh, historically, I've always made the case that the, the economic left died uh, or died in the in the 1960s. Uh, that from the 1960s on, uh, the left as it exists is primarily cultural. But in the West, uh, the economic left pretty much died with World War One, and this this switch to a cultural Marxism uh, began immediately thereafter. Uh, when the Frankfurt School uh, came to the United States, uh, as you said, uh, they mostly set up shop at Columbia. Uh, but probably the most, in, who would become the most influential of them, uh, Herbert Marcuse, uh, actually went to work for the U.S. government. Um, and he was very much removed from uh, most of the Frankfurt School uh, for the 1940s and then into the 1950s. Um, when the Frankfurt School's uh, leaders uh, decided that they would go back to Frankfurt once they believed that Germany had been cleansed of its Nazi influences and they could go home safely, uh, Marcuse decided to stay. Uh, and, and that's a, a very important uh, inflection point uh, in the American left because Marcuse, while associated with the Frankfurt School, was not a part uh, of them originally. Uh, he was a latecomer. Uh, he didn't stay with them in the United States for very much time. And his primary strength uh, was gaining public attention. He wasn't, you know, an excellent theorist or an excellent writer. Uh, he was primarily an ex excellent uh, uh, gainer of publicity for himself, primarily. Uh, and, and so he offers his ideas on the Cultural Revolution, dealing pr primarily with uh, you know, a sexual revolution, uh, and then getting into probably his most important work uh, in the 1960s, which was uh, how tolerance, the concept of tolerance could be turned around to shut down opposition voices. This intolerant tolerance uh, is something that comes from Marcuse and, and is very much a part of what he uh, advocated for the left to do, to shut down uh, opposition voices in the name of tolerance. Um, so Marcuse becomes sort of the guru of the left uh, 
in this country. Uh, and his cultural ideas take firm hold within uh, uh, the academy uh, and then within various cultural circles uh, by the early 1970s. And you start to see uh, critical theory as he interpreted it uh, become a much more important part uh, of all of the humanities uh, by the early 1970s, uh, to the point where by the end of that decade, uh, virtually the entire uh, American uh, academic uh, environment is dominated by this idea uh, that the world is not necessarily as it appears that there are several realities, that there are external realities that people don't understand, uh, and that once the workers of the world are able to understand uh, these realities by altering the culture, then they can have their revolution. So we, we had this very radical change uh, in American culture uh, throughout the 1960s and then the 1970s that began to permeate all, permeate all uh, of the institutions of American culture, from uh, religion to academia to media to entertainment, all down the list. And the only one that stood apart from them was American business. Right. So they won. Gramsci's long march through the institution won all those spots. And then the last spot is the capital markets or the business community in, in very large sense. And you kind of break it up. I mean, you talk about in your book, there's two different. You're willing to say the left and the right our players. Can you talk kind of about how uh, these ideas have kind of infiltrated the business community to the, in the present day? Yeah, sure. Um, as, as I noted before, uh, the primary mover of these ideas from uh, the humanities to uh, business education and then into the business world more generally uh, is a man named Edward Freeman. Uh, and Edward Freeman worked uh, at uh, he t his first job out of graduate school was to work at the management consulting arm uh, of the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and the interesting thing about Freeman is his PhD wasn't in business. It was uh, in philosophy. Uh, so he gets involved in this management training uh, exercise uh, at the University of Pennsylvania uh, where he meets a handful of fairly radical uh, humanities professors who say, look, we want to democratize the markets. We want to introduce this new ethic that says the markets are for everybody, not just for the rich, not just for the people who own the companies, but for everybody. Um, and, and so he goes about essentially altering this idea of stakeholder uh, capitalism and turning it into a normative theory a, theory, a theory of value, a theory where this becomes the ethical framework uh, of business going forward, where it's not about the shareholders anymore. It's primarily about the stakeholders, not as a practical matter, but as a moral matter, as an ethical matter. Uh, and he, he has enormous influence. His, uh, his first uh, long treatment uh, of the ethics of stakeholder capitalism, I believe, was in 1984. And, and from there, uh, the, the, the field of stakeholder theory uh, took off and became one of the more dominant theories uh, in American business administration and uh, business ethics in particular uh, over the next, you know, since, ever since, you know, almost four decades later, it continues to dominate uh, in the education of, of uh, American business students. Uh, it was only a matter of time, therefore, uh, before some of these students who learned this, some of the stu students who were taught uh, that their primary 
responsibility is to the stakeholder rather than the shareholder, uh, started to move into the upper echelons uh, of American business. Uh, and that's the point we're at now, where a lot uh, of the CEOs and uh, a lot of the people who direct uh, the um, uh, the human resources departments at companies are very much uh, products of this idea that business exists to serve a social function uh, rather than a business function, rather than the function of the shareholders. Wow, yeah, it's really incredible how it's changed. Some of that change is definitely there. And you talk about some of these big corporations and how they operate on a global level, really at the kind of the latter part of the book. You talk about Apple, Disney, Amazon. Can you talk maybe just, uh, <clears throat> that's a very important part of the book, but can you kind of, as we're kind of coming to the end, can you talk about how some of those huge multinational corporations have inculcated these woke ideas into their business plans? Sure. Um, you know, uh, Apple is is probably the easiest one to discuss because they're uh, they're very uh, very vocal about what they believe are their uh, ethical uh, advantages over their comp competition, uh, and yet they don't even bother to hide uh, the stuff that clearly contradicts what they're saying. Um, for example, Apple has made the claim uh, over the past several years that they're the greenest company in the world, uh, that they are uh, a zero carbon emissions company, uh, that they have spent considerable amount, considerable amount of money uh, to move beyond fossil fuels, and that the entire company functions without producing any net emissions at all, which is very impressive. And the fact of the matter is that it's true. If you talk about Apple Corporation alone, the problem is that the overwhelming majority of energy that is uh, expended in designing, creating, manufacturing and distributing Apple products is not done by Apple Corporation, but done by contractors that it hires uh, primarily uh, from Taiwan who who put uh uh, who manufacture and, and distribute from uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, and they are nowhere near uh, carbon neutral. In fact, you know, the companies in uh, the PRC are very much dependent on, on coal. Uh, they're very much dependent on uh, some of the dirtiest uh, energy sources in the world. Um, and they're very, very, very uh, opposite uh, of what uh, Disney would, or pardon me, Apple would like you to believe that the company uh, is is in favor of. So, you know, they have this this sort of two-faced feature where they are perfectly green uh, in the United States, but the overwhelming majority of their energy is, is dirty uh, and it's done in China and it's uh, something that they believe they can hide from the rest of the world. Right. And they do that too with, you mentioned Foxconn and all this stuff. So this this public image is like Benetton, this, all these, you know, diverse, we're great to all of our employees, but they've got people working for them. Could not much. I mean, you talk about people jumping off of buildings, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's please go. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an, a, another aspect to this. Is I, I happened to see a story the other day uh, that um, for the first time in his tenure as CEO, Tim Cook is facing uh, some complaints from uh, employees in the United States, and and one of uh, the employees who singled out uh, in the article is an employee who is deaf. Uh, and repeatedly asked 
uh, over and over and over at the retail store, the Apple retail store where he worked for a sign language interpreter so that he could do his job. Uh, and Apple apparently chose to ignore uh, his requests. Um, and while th that's a very serious issue, and that's an issue that people with hearing loss would probably be very sympathetic to. I have a son who has has severe hearing loss. And, and so I, I feel a certain amount of empathy uh, with this employee. Uh, that's nothing compared to what goes on uh, in the Foxconn Apple plants uh, in China. As you said, uh, they had to put up nets over the factory floors uh, at, the, at the Foxconn plants to catch the bodies when people jumped off uh, various other floors because they were committing suicide because of how terrible the working conditions are. Uh, they live at the plant. They work at the plant. They essentially have no social lives. Uh, they're getting paid a fraction of what a, a, an American worker would get, uh, and their lives are miserable. And so many of them committed suicide that they decided to put up nets to catch them. That's the way Apple has operated in China. Uh, and so the idea that it's now having problems uh, in the United States is fitting and, and a bit amusing, but it, it's certainly not surprising. But that's the way it is for a lot of these corporations, Nike and stuff like that. They have these great kind of advertisements. We're woke, but they're operating in a country that's using Uyghur labor and all kinds of stuff that's really bad. And there's other woke things going on. Disney, Google's had problems. It was interesting. Coinbase recently went public and their CEO tried to address this woke by saying no politics at work. We're not we're going to be apolitical, which really made a lot of people really angry too, because they really wanted to. So the polit politicization is not just <clears throat> happening at the top level, it's happening among the employees as well. So it's really a remarkable phenomenon. People need to keep an eye out for that. But yeah, where's uh, anything you'd like, we're, yeah, sorry, we're about 40 minutes. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or finish up with or anything that I missed? Well, I was just gonna say in response to your last comment, um, generally speaking, we always say that the pressure to be woke uh, on corporations comes from three directions. Uh, it comes from the bottom up, uh, which is employees. Um, you know, CEOs aren't the only ones who go to business school and learn that you should be woke as part of your uh, professional life. Uh, employees do too. Uh, we see this a lot, particularly uh, at the tech companies like Facebook uh, and Google, uh, where the employees push management uh, in a very uh, politically leftward direction. Uh, a lot of the pressure comes from the top down. Uh, you look at Bob Iger at Disney, you look at Tim Cook at Apple, uh, you look at Jeff Bezos at Amazon. These these are very woke people who are pushing uh, woke ideas. Uh, and then pressure comes from the outside in. Uh, and that's activist investors uh, and primarily activist uh, institutional investors, large asset managers, uh, getting back to Larry Fink uh, from the introduction to the book, uh, that's where he has his influence. Uh, it's from the outside in pressuring these companies uh, to behave in a certain way or to lose uh, his investment or to uh, run the risk of having him fight management and directors uh, in uh, uh, corporate the annual corporate meetings. Right, yeah. yeah. Now, this is a really important book. I highly recommend people go check that out. Where's the best place where people can go purchase this book? Well, you can get it anywhere. You can get it on Amazon if you like. Uh, I would prefer everybody get it from Encounter Books, EncounterBooks.com, uh, my publisher, uh, because they don't have uh, the same uh, woke capital uh, contradictions that, that Amazon does. Right. And then do you have a website or social media if anybody wants to reach out to you? Are you on Twitter? I, or 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter at the Paul Forum at the Paul Forum, uh, and then uh, our website. Sorry, the Paul P A U L Forum is that correct? No, P O L Political P Paul Forum P O L Paul Forum, uh, and then I can also be found at wokecapital.org. Wokecapital.org, and again, the title of the book is "The Dictatorship of Woke Capital: How Political Correctness Captured Big Business." There's a lot more information in here, guys. Highly recommend you get this book. Very important to understand, especially if you're in the corporate world or in the business world, what's going to happen or what's happening really right now. And again, the author's name is Stephen R. Sukup, published February 2021. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, William. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Stay there. All right. That was perfect.